I'm very grateful. And when I met with uh, your pastor, uh, David Harvey, before summer, I had specifically requested Acts 28 um, because I think that the way Luke ends the story, uh, and so Acts 28 would be the very end of the whole story, which begins in Luke chapter 1. Um, the way he ends it is profound and almost shocking, um, and yet uh, I think it is so important. And so I, I pray that this uh, exploration of Acts 28 um, is really meaningful. Uh, and, and edifying for all of you and all of us. So um, basically, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to read to you the first 10 verses of Acts 28. And maybe you've heard this uh, story preached before in like youth group. You know, there's like this viper snake, uh, and it's an exciting story. But when read next to the, the way the book of Acts ends, it is very profound, and there are some striking things about this story. So the first 10 verses go like this. After we had reached safety, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and you'll notice after we reached safety, um, he was at lost at sea in like a shipwreck, like a life-changing traumatic event before this. So after we had reached safety, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us unusual kindness. Since it had begun to rain and was cold, they kindled a fire and welcomed all of us around it. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man must be a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And I'm not going to lie, I would love to do a whole sermon on just that line, because if you think about it, Paul is a murderer. When we met Paul in the beginning of the book of Acts, they are laying down like the cloaks of Stephen, who they just murdered before Paul. Like, it's just this profound, like, maybe justice will catch up to him. And it's like, there's a different justice um, at the helm here. Um, it's profound. The, uh, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were expecting him to swell up or drop dead, but after they had waited a long time and saw that nothing unusual had happened to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, in the vicinity of that place were lands belonging to the leading man or the governor of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It so happened that the father of Publius lay sick in bed with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and cured him by praying and putting his hands on him. After this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They bestowed many honors on us, and when we were about to sail, they put on board all the provisions we needed. This story paired with the events that take place in Rome in the second half of this final chapter to the book of Acts makes for the penultimate display of the Christian life. You see, Paul almost died a traumatic death in the previous scene. He is shipwrecked, starving, doesn't eat for weeks, and he's tossed in the waves of a winter sea. Acts 27 verse 20 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Paul needs medical attention. He is likely in shock, and in a state of extreme weakness. And he is greeted by the indigenous folks there on the island of Malta. And he, uh, the very first thing we are told is that they showed him an unusual kindness. That's the first note. He arrives, washed up on shore, and they showed him an unusual kindness. These Maltese folks knew nothing about Paul. 
They owed him nothing. They had no reason to be kind to him. He could not turn and like bestow gifts on them. Like they, they had no reason to care. Um, they had no reason to ha- save his life, um, let alone send him away with everything he needs. It seems like there's a huge community effort that goes into caring for this man who's been puked up on the shore, like Jonah arriving in Nineveh, or like the baby Moses in his shoddy wicker basket arriving into the uh, attention of the Egyptian princess. Paul arrives in Malta as an empty-handed guest, like the Christ child arriving empty-handed in his manger. And if you read this story and you've, you, you've read like the rest of Acts recently, there's a few things that should strike you about this. One, Paul doesn't plant a church here. Paul doesn't convert anyone here. He doesn't share his testimony with anyone. He doesn't teach the scriptures. He doesn't advance the kingdom. As far as the narrative's concerned and what Luke has chosen to tell us, Paul doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. We come wondering if salvation made it to Malta, but we cannot wonder for long when we realize that Paul is the one who is saved. Paul has nothing. These folks could have turned away, just another body washed up on shore, another refugee, another nameless stranger in the news, no reason not to stroll by. Luke wants you to know that Jesus is on this island, with or without Paul. Paul meets Jesus in their hospitality, in their tenderness, in their generosity. This story becomes very quickly a template for missions, as if to say, God is everywhere, waiting for us to arrive. Paul does not win anyone over. He meets Christ in his weakness and offers back to Jesus the only thing he has, tenderness, gratitude, and attention. He offers them his prayers. He touches their bodies and in his need allows them to touch his. Dr. Willie Jennings, um, I love this quote very much. He says that uh, in this story, there is a template forming here not simply for missions, but for living a life of faith, where we recognize our vulnerability and our shared need for one another as the starting point of sharing the gospel. You see, sometimes we get stuck thinking that the whole world is filled with sin, and it's our job to conquer the darkness by spreading the word about Jesus until Jesus' kingdom takes over the world. We think it's our job to advance the kingdom, or what other words, uh, build the kingdom, spread the kingdom. But the Bible, and sometimes my students get frustrated when I say this, but then they start flipping their Bible, and I'm like, aha, good, it worked. Um, The Bible never says this. This kind of language of building the kingdom and forwarding the kingdom and, you know, assisting Jesus in his global domination efforts, like, that's not in there. Uh, What it says What our job is in in the scriptures is um, to bear witness to it, to bear witness to it, and to allow that encounter to stretch our imagination for how big and wide and deep God's love for this world already is. God doesn't need us to advance his kingdom. He invites us to bear witness to the wonder of it here in our midst now and yet not yet fully. The world isn't cloaked in sin, and it isn't waiting for us to advance the kingdom. In fact, and I have made a special note to quote Isaiah 6 in every sermon I've given this summer because of how Isaiah 6 is what ends the book of Acts, but 
Let me get to this. Um, in Isaiah 6, uh, uh, verses 1 to 3, we are told, In that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. The earth is covered in Christ. The scriptures tell us that all things were made by God and for God and through God and all things are held together within God. There is no part of this world that isn't already filled with God's glory. No human face, no strange neighborhood. There is nowhere you can go, the psalmist tells us, to escape the presence and glory of God. You could go to the highest mountain or the deepest sea or the most foreign land. There's nowhere you won't meet God if you have eyes to witness the glory of God that this whole world is covered in. And Paul had these eyes. You see, Paul witnesses the glory of God in Malta it says immediately, his first impression is that he notices their unusual kindness. It's like, my goodness, are there already Christians here? How are you all showing me the love of Jesus? How do you know about this? How do you know to tenderly sacrifice your time and comfort to care for a stranger? How did you know about that? What an unusual kindness. Paul is surprised by the wonder of his encounter on the island. He witnesses the glory of God in Malta in their patience and their generosity and their long-suffering. You see, Jesus was already there. Paul only needed the eyes to see him, and he does. Willie Jennings says, The church has never learned to see kindnesses as what they really are, the sign of the Spirit's presence with peoples as precursor to a holy joining being orchestrated by God. Paul found Jesus in Malta. Just as he found Jesus in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and Jerusalem, and before that, on his way to Damascus. Christ has always been there, waiting to meet Paul and orchestrate the joining of Paul's story to the story of Jesus, who is waking all people up even now from the dream of separation and despair. And this is who Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. But sadly, we often miss it. The church often misses it. We have eyes, but we don't see it which, spoiler alert, is what the next part of Isaiah 6 says. But um, before I read that, I want to show you um, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 115, I think, uh, explains to us very well how we get into this state where we don't have eyes to see the glory of God before us, and we imagine it's our job to tell people what it looks like and give it to them. In Psalm 115, verse 1 to 8, it says, um, and as you know, the Psalms are usually like arranged like a stanza, like a poem on the screen but I didn't have room for that on this slide. So you get to imagine it as a narrative just for this special moment. Psalm 115, 1 to 8. He says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, 
but they do not walk, and they make no sound in their throats. And those who make them are like them, and so are all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. You become like what you invest your time and energy into. You become like what you think brings you security and success. We were made in the image of the living God, of the God who has ears that hear and a heart that breaks. God has a mouth that speaks words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God does not have a heart made of stone like the gods we tend to worship. Gods like military alliances and pension plans and the stock market. We become like these false gods who appear powerful, though in truth are entirely incompetent and indifferent. Though we see pain, we turn our face away in indifference. Though we hear stories of injustice, we say, there is nothing we can do in a confession of incompetence. But Paul sees the reality before him through the eyes of Christ crucified. He sees with a soft heart what God can see, and he loves what God loves. Um, in Ezekiel 36, you know, usually when it's a Nicolaire sermon, it's a tour through the Old Testament, so this is, this is totally par for the course. In Ezekiel 36, we are taught um, that humans have a heart problem. The Spirit speaks through the prophet, saying, In that day I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, removing our hearts of stone, returning us to our true image, the image of the crucified God, the image of the virgin son of Mary, the image of the slain lamb, the king of the Jews. Willie Jennings says, this story in Malta and the story in the whole book of Acts is not a story about Paul. It is a story about a longing God who has bound the divine life to the frailty of flesh. This God is still, even now, breathing new life into the nostrils of the clay man until his stone heart begins to warm and beat and glow with the light of Christ in whom he was formed, illuminating the shadows until I can look with eyes of love and see in the stranger what I could only formerly see dimly in the mirror. And the work of the Spirit is to bring you to the place where you can love your neighbor as yourself. As if Adam, waking from the dream, looking at Eve, does not notice what makes them different. He simply cries out, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, it's me. The second half of Acts 28 and the final episode in the book of Acts of the Apostles goes like this. Paul leaves Malta alive, fed, warm. Everything he needs is with him, and he finally arrives in Rome. Um, he gets there to Rome. He meets some Roman uh, Christians, uh, and he's on, in, in, on house arrest, kind of with a Roman guard there in, in the house with him. Uh, and he's hosting people, and, and he's debating with people, and he's talking to the Jewish uh, people there, his own people there in Rome. So these are the last few verses of the whole book of Acts. It says, After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers, 
From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying. See, testifying. I saw this. I have a testimony. Testifying um, to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, here he goes, this is Isaiah 6, this is the next part after the whole earth is filled with God's glory. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say you will indeed listen but never understand. You will indeed look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without, with all boldness and without hindrance. It's the final word in the whole book. It's a shocking way to end the story. Here Paul uh, is quoting Isaiah 6. And um, the biblical scholar, the Luke scholar in me, just loves this because um, unless you've like deeply studied the four Gospels, which I would recommend, it's made my life better, um, Matthew, Mark, and John all include a citation of Isaiah 6 somewhere in their Gospel. It's like a big moment. Um, But when you read the book of Luke, you're like, where is it? Why doesn't he quote it? It's the storyteller that Luke is. Um, Luke waits. He waits for the final moment. Uh, uh, Isaiah 6, as you know, is the the chapter uh, that that begins with this radical idea that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Uh, But then in Isaiah 6, God commissions Isaiah to go and ask his people, if though they have eyes, they can see it. Can you see it? So Luke places it at the very end of Paul's life. And it's profound because Paul's first encounter with Jesus, like I said, caused something like scales to fall from his eyes. Paul used to be a religious leader who was angrily guarding the boundaries, defending God's honor by violently protecting the line between us and them. But then the scales fell from his eyes and Paul was given sight to see what God sees. Paul was given a new heart to love what God loves. And here Paul is finally in Rome, looking at the religious leaders in Rome, the insiders, the gatekeepers, and he quotes Isaiah 6. With the scent of Maltese hospitality still on his skin. He says, you look, but you never perceive. You listen, but you still do not understand. You see, this text from Isaiah 6, which is so profound, um, the text from Isaiah 6 is not being spoken to potential converts. He's not like, oh, I'm so sick of arguing with you and trying to convince you to choose Jesus and to become a Christian. Oh, finally, I guess I'm going to give up and you're lost. That's not at all what's happening in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is being spoken to those already on the inside, those who've read the scriptures and they've gone to the ceremonies and they've, they've, they've done the discerning. They're, they're the ones inside. And he says, and you still don't see it? You still can't feel it? You, see, you clearly are good at listening, but you don't understand. You don't comprehend. He's speaking to those on the inside. Paul is not trying to convert the Roman Jews to Christianity. He's trying to convince the gatekeepers of his own tradition to welcome the love of God for the Gentile. 
This isn't the moment, you see, where God breaks up with the Jews and begins his new relationship with the Christians. And as you can imagine, if you've ever studied history, this part of the Bible, specifically this part, has been used in very violent ways against Jewish people. As if this is the text where God's like, I've had enough, I'm done, my covenants mean nothing, this, like, I'm done, I'm moving on, these people are better. That's not, that cannot be, that's, that's not what's happening here. That's not what this is. Um, this, this isn't the moment where God is breaking up with, with Israel and beginning a new relationship. You see, we um, worship Israel's God. We worship Israel's God, and Israel's God doesn't live in temples made by human efforts. He is not held captive in the imaginations of important men wearing important suits and important boardrooms. Earlier in Acts, actually, in Acts 17, and I did not preach Acts 17, though I wanted to. I was sad. But actually, Kristen did, and it was amazing. Um, and there's this verse. Uh, essentially, I think this verse in Acts 17 really opens up uh, Acts 28, and it kind of brings the whole book together. Um, in Acts 17, if you remember, Paul is in Athens, and he's in like the Areopagus, and he's debating with kind of the philosophers of the day and, and talking about these different ideologies. And, and, and Paul um, says this about, about God in Acts 17, 24 to 29. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all peoples to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring, and since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. This is Israel's God. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the love of the triune God for Israel reaches beyond Israel, whether those on the inside are ready or not. The Spirit of God is on the move. It's as if God is saying to his people, I love you so much that my love will flow to you and through you towards your enemies until your enemies join me in returning my love back upon you from behind and before, from beyond and below. The arms of God are ever widening. He's not removing one group and putting another in. He's saying, my love's coming for you. And if you can't hear it from me and my prophets, I'm gonna put it in the mouths of your enemies until the two become one flesh in Christ and all things are reconciled and all things are made new. God isn't going to wait for his people to be okay with God's mission. You see, frustration isn't rejection. It says here, um, I'll go back to the Acts 28, so it's there. It says here that some accepted Paul's interpretation of Scripture and others did not. Some caught the vision, some did not. Some imagined they had something to gain and others couldn't imagine needing anything they didn't already have. If your life is comfortable for you, you will, of course, refuse to see a new way. So here Paul is in Rome with his people, and he isn't having a theoretical debate about a certain demographic of people. Paul remembers the names of his Gentile friends. He remembers eating with them and laughing with them. He remembers how they washed his wounds and fed his hungry belly. They saw him with eyes of love, and they became his friends. And if you don't need any more friends and the way the world is ordered is working for you, I don't blame you for not being interested in a conversation about change. 
things were working for Pharaoh. Why should he care about the estate of the enslaved Hebrews for whom things were very much not working? Things were just fine for Caesar. Why should he care about the Jews and their messiahs? Why should the Jewish Romans care about the Maltese Gentiles? Why should you? Why should I? If your life is good and you don't need anything to change, you will resist change. But for Paul, he's not talking about the mission. He's talking about his friends. The text says that Paul welcomed everyone. That Paul sees and hears and feels and loves. Paul has become one who shares in the passion of God for Israel. Paul knows that as a co-heir with Christ, are you ready for this? That as a co-heir with Christ, we have inherited God's dream for the world which God loves. God's dream that all would be saved. God's dream that all who live in darkness would see a great light, that all tongues would confess that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. The slain lamb, not the roaring lion. God's dream that weakness, not strength, would reveal the spirit of life to a dying world. Paul has become like Christ here at the end of his life as he awaits his execution. He knows he has been anointed for one purpose, to proclaim good news to the poor and the recovery of sight for the blind until the hardened hearts become soft again. This is the penultimate end of the story of the apostles. A short scene in Malta where Paul is saved and cared for and shown the love of Jesus before finally arriving in Rome. We don't know how Paul is executed, but we know that he was. And we know that Luke chooses not to include those details, which drives me nuts, by the way. I'm like, Luke, come on. We know the book of Acts was written after the execution. Like, include it. Tell us the story. How did it happen? What was it like for Paul? How much like Jesus was it? Like, we just want to know, right? But uh, I'm starting to kind of just realize it's as if Luke doesn't really end the story. He just puts the pen down and looks up at you, oh reader, as if to say, you have eyes. What do you see? You have a heart. You have feet and two hands. What will you do? And he leaves it. He walks away. He leaves it. And it strikes me. This summer, when I look at um, like the whole book of Acts, uh, this summer uh, we have pondered, this church, Westside Kings, you've pondered how deeply God loves the world he has created. The book of Acts reveals to us a God whose love is endlessly patient, keeps no record of wrong, endures, tolerates, hopes, and trusts through all of it. As if no part of God's love hinges on us or our behavior, because God's love is God's project, not ours. We cannot coerce God, or summon God, or send God away, because our God is a free and lively agent. And God has demonstrated his ultimate sovereignty in this. God has lavished an incarnate and unfailing love upon the world. God loved us even before Jesus died. We're told that in John 3.16, the verse we all have memorized. God's love was the occasion for Jesus' death and resurrection, not the ends that justified the brutal means. It wasn't our sin that held Jesus to the cross, and it wasn't God's wrath. It was God's love that held God to the cross. And it was God's love that rose eternal and triumphant from the grave. And God has invited the whole world to rise to the same unfailing and unending love. Father Greg Boyle, says God has taken seven buses just to arrive at us. God has pitched his tent in our midst. God desires us. 
longs for us, pursues us, chooses us. God is the one calling out, where are you, to the hiding Adam and Eve. Who told you you were naked, he asks. Hiding from God in shame was not God's idea. Where did you get this? God is not disappointed in you. God hasn't had to learn to accept you, and neither has God had to settle for whatever this version of your present self is, as if this isn't the version God had hoped for. God isn't mad that you're carrying your load the way you're carrying it. God's impressed you've carried it this far. God loved the very good world he created so much that he became one of us and moved into the neighborhood, cleaned it up a whole bunch so that we could feel at home again, so that the world could feel like home for all of us. All of the work God's doing and all of the work we've been sent to do is the work of homemaking. Our hope is that at the end of it all, the home of God will be among mortals, that all tears will be wiped away and all things will be made new. It says that in Revelation 21, that is the end goal. The last stop on the train is when God is at home with us and all of us are at home in the God who is love. N.T. Wright says it like this, this is the basis of all other good news, that the power behind the cosmos is not blind chance, nor yet brute force, but love. This is the claim that ought to shape the Christian imagination and propel us into the neighborhood. We love because he first loved us. And this is not a fickle love or a manipulative love. God doesn't love us only when we're obeying and then withdraw his love when we wander off course. God doesn't stonewall or give us the silent treatment until he figures out what we want and get to work. God is the source of all love, phileo, agape, and eros, all of it. God is the initiating love that begets all love and reconciles all of creation back towards it. My favorite poet, Christian poet, Stephen T. Berg, says it like this. Here in the daylight, God disappears. Running here and there, contending with the desires of people, shaking with laughter, then weeping, which recalls to her this singular concern to keep dancing the crazy cosmic conga and coax all the broken circles back to love. Because God loves you in the neighborhood of your own mind you'd rather not visit. God loves you at the site of the wound you'd rather not tend. God loves the side of you that's turned towards him, and God loves the shadow you're casting that you've never turned to examine. God's love is a gift, not the wage that you earn for your hard religious work. God's love is a gift, and gifts are forgiving. And Paul experienced the gift, and that gift flows from him. And he says, I don't know about you guys, but I'm in with the Maltese. I'm here in the world that God loves, and I'm not going to stand back in the boardroom and gatekeep with you anymore. And I don't think the Spirit of God is going to wait till you're ready. So salvation is going. It's going all the way. And Paul's prayer at the end of this is that message of salvation and love for this world that God loves would make it back and gather all together. So in conclusion, um, I'm going to uh, read just a, a short two verses from 1 Corinthians. It feels most appropriate to me. And I, I do a lot of weddings, and 1 Corinthians 13 is in most of them. So you may have heard this, but this is just a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13 at the very end uh, of, of the, the, you know, love is patient, love is kind section. 
And I think it's profound, and it's a profound summary of, of, of Paul's theology. He writes this to the church he, he finds in Corinth. Love never fails. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's pray. We pray to you, O light of the world, Jesus, our Messiah, I pray that your light would illuminate the shadows and we would look with courage at what we have not been able to love and we would find you there, loving it. I ask that you would equip us with your courage and your power and your strength to imagine something new, to imagine all things new, to imagine your spirit um, doing something new in this place. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring stillness, that you would bring silence back to our crowded mind, that we would be a people who light this candle and place it in the window for you, saying, knock on this door, O Son of God. Interrupt the performance. We are weary and suspicious. We are a cynical people. I pray that you would soften us and slow us down that you would help us to stop competing for the light, help us to stop proving our right to make claims about the light, help stop our desire to gatekeep the light. My ego tells me there isn't enough and that I need to take control of the narrative. I pray that you would free me and free all of us from this scarcity. I pray that you would free us from this burden of not trusting. Help us to see what you see and to love what you love. Help us to see all that your light illuminates and to stand in your glory like the seraphs crying out, the whole earth is filled. We pray in the name of our soft-hearted God. Amen.